We are continuing the series, we, Are We Living in the Last Days? And uh, as I mentioned last week, I didn't realize when I planned this uh, series that uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, with all the heartbreaking images that we're seeing on the news, and then with recent talk of chemical and nuclear weapons and uh, even World War III, being mentioned and talked about, um, I didn't realize that would be the sober backdrop for this series. So I want to just uh, encourage us all, please keep praying for the Ukraine. Please keep praying for the people of the Ukraine, for not only for intervention and for protection, uh, also for humanitarian need, uh, help to get to them. Um, there's so much suffering that's going on right now, and it's so very real to them. Pray for Russia. Okay, Russia's not our enemy. Um, pray against the leaders of Russia, but for the people of Russia, that the Lord would work mightily in their hearts as well, and for our leaders to have wisdom. We have links on our Facebook page, and we will soon have them on our website as well. Different, couple of different ways that you could give if you desire to give to uh, help with some of the humanitarian needs um, through a Samaritan Purse, or we have a sister church in Ukraine um, that are there helping giving out packages, care packages and relief packages right there on the ground. So we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about the signs of the times. On an April day in 2014, Mark Wade and his family heard the warning signs of a tornado, the tornado sirens. Uh, they were about to take shelter in their closet when the neighbor yelled across to them, come join us, we're going down into our storm cellar. So Wade and his wife, his three-year-old boy, joined about 10 other people in this storm cellar, and moments later the tornado hit. When they came up from the tornado, the Wade's home was completely gone. Nothing left but the foundation. And as Wade said to NPR, he said, if we hadn't gone into that cellar, I don't know that we'd be alive today. Early warning systems can save lives. And meteorologists have been working on improving their skills at reading the signs of the sky, what's coming in the weather. In 1986, the U.S. National Weather Service predicted 25% of tornadoes with a five-minute lead time. Today, they are able to predict 75% of the tornadoes that occur with a 13-minute lead time. That ability for the Wades, the ability to understand the signs of the sky and have time to respond was the difference between life and death. The Pharisees came to Jesus one day and they asked him for a sign. They asked him for a sign, and Jesus said to them, he rebuked them, and he said, you guys understand you can read the signs of the sky. You know when bad weather's coming or good weather's coming, but you do not understand the signs of the times. We want to understand the signs of the times. In Matthew 24, the disciples come to Jesus, and they ask him, what the signs of his return and the end of the age will be. Let's read it beginning in verse 1. 
Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I want to pause here for a moment, because they don't know it, but the disciples are actually asking two questions here. They think they're asking one question. When is the temple going to be destroyed, and when is the signs of your coming and the end of the age going to be? But it's actually two questions, and Jesus answers both of these questions. But as is so often the case with prophecies, the answer interweaves with each other. Prophetic visions and words are often challenging to discern. It's, somebody said it's like this. It's like you're looking at a mountain range and you see all these mountains and they look like they're all right there, but in between could be miles and miles of valley that you can't see. And that's the case with prophetic words. They often show mountaintops of what God is going to do, but in between is a period of time that we don't see in the prophecy. For the sake of simplicity this morning, I am going to focus our attention on the signs of Jesus' second coming and the end of the age. Let's continue reading in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's a timely verse. So is the next word. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pain. Then they will deliver you to, up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I love that last verse because it gives us some good in the midst of a lot of bad. Sign number one that Jesus gives us, and I'm going to sum it up, is an increase of wars, natural calamities, Spiritual deception, persecution, lawlessness, and gospel advance. That's sign number one that Jesus mixes in there. And the challenge with these signs is that there's nothing unique or unusual about any really one of them. 
they've all been occurring from the beginning of history, except for the advance of the gospel, which began immediately after Jesus commissioned the church. They've been a constant throughout history. So how do they help us as signs of the times? Jesus gives us the answer in verse 8. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Birth pains or contractions can begin as early as 16 weeks in a pregnancy. And as it goes on, the nature of the pregnancy and the nature of those contractions don't change over the course of the pregnancy. But what happens is the rapidity and the intensity of the contractions changes. They start to come faster and faster and more intensely and more intensely. And that's what the last days are going to be like. Birth pains, things that have been happening from the beginning, but they're going to start to hit with such intensity. You know something is coming, is, is being born. Something is being birthed. Jesus doesn't give us these signs in order that we can pinpoint the exact moment or the exact day. Jesus gives us the signs so that we are ready, so that we are not asleep, so that we are not caught by surprise, so that we can be ready and watching and alert. So sign number one is this increase in these birth pains. Sign number two kind of piggybacks on that. The last days will be terrible days of tribulation. Verse 21. I'm jumping ahead a little bit and we're going to come backwards a little bit. But verse 21 of Matthew 24. Jesus says this. For then, for then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. But mark this. Take note of this. There will be terrible times in the last days. I know this is not super great news. This is not maybe, you know, like happy talk. But this is, the scripture is clear. The world is not coming to an end with this beautiful growth into a utopian society where everything gets better and better. Just the opposite. It is going to be the worst time ever, Jesus said, before and after. What this period of time will be, in a sense, what's going to be birthed in immediately is the worst time of tribulation the world has ever seen. The world, tribulation means a time of great trouble and suffering. And again, we have a sign here that's very hard to pinpoint. Time of great trouble and suffering. If you lived in Kiev right now, that's what this would feel like right now. We're sitting here safely in our church, in a country full of security. We don't know what it's like to be awake all night. 
with the very real possibility we will not see the morning. We do not know what it's like to live in the tribulation that they are living in in different parts of the Ukraine right now. For them, they would say, terrible tribulation, that's today, that's right now. And they're right. They're absolutely right. But there have been other points in history and other places in the world who have gone through equally great or even greater tribulation than the Ukrainians are facing right now. It is a very difficult sign to pinpoint exactly when is the greatest tribulation of all tribulations upon the earth. But think of the birth pains, things getting more intense, faster and faster. I believe there are signs of tribulation that are getting worse and worse as history moves on. There have always been wars. There have always been genocides. There have always been brutal killing. But in the last century, mankind has achieved the dubious ability to kill in numbers that could not have been imagined 2,000 years ago. Under the Nazi regime, an estimated 21 million non-battle deaths were caused by their murderous reign, including, as we all know, 6 million Jews it is estimated that 66 million Soviets were killed under the Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev leadership in that period of time. 66 million Soviets. Between 32 and 61 million Chinese were killed under the communist regime since 1949. You add up those numbers and you have almost the half of the entire population of the United States. Staggering numbers of deaths in the last century alone. Amer Armenian genocide or the Cambodian, gen Cambodian genocide under Pol Pot or so many other examples. Are the pains, are the birth pains getting more intense? I would, I would suggest to you in the last hundred years, those birth pains have gotten so much more intense than at any time in history. Look at what Jesus said. If those days had not been shortened, no human being would be saved. Man would be exterminated. When Jesus said those words, it would have been impossible for them to imagine mankind basically wiping itself out. Worldwide extinction by the sword would be terribly difficult to imagine. But today it's not so difficult to conceive or in any way laughable to us. In the past hundred years, the birth pains of war and destruction have grown exponentially faster and greater than at any other time in human history. Sign number three, and I apologize, I know this is not a happy thing, but we need to understand it. Jesus took the time to say them, we need to understand as best we can the signs that Jesus gives the disciples. 
Sign number three, the Antichrist appears to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15 and 16. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in the in Judea flee to the mountains. Now this is a difficult and rather obscure verse, and we're not going to cover it in depth. But this is a prophecy with more than one fulfillment. In fact, this is where Jesus says, this is what's going to, when they ask, when is the temple going to be destroyed? This is a part of that answer. It has more than one fulfillment. In fact, it has more than two fulfillments. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds with this, but what the abomination of desolation was a term that Daniel writes about in Daniel chapter 9, and it refers to the desecration, to an abominable desecration of the temple of God. Sometime around B.C. 167, Antiochus Epiphanes came in with the Seuclids, I'm not sure how to say their name, and they took the holy te- temple, they took the things out of the holy temple, and they, they created a, an altar to Zeus, and they slaughtered a swine, which goes against everything in the Jewish culture. They slaughtered a swine to their gods using the holy temple items. And that was an abomination of desolation. But that's not the one Jesus is talking about because that happened 160 years before Jesus. Jesus is speaking of 70 AD when the Romans came in with their emperor insignia as a god into the temple, desecrating it, and destroying it, tearing it apart, stone by stone, until nothing was left. And that's the second fulfillment of this. But I believe there is a third fulfillment of this scripture, which will be done by the final Antichrist. Now again, we're getting into verses and passages that are hard to make the connections and you certainly can disagree with me and that's okay but here is a passage why I believe the disciples understood this to be the final antichrist 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 Paul is writing to the church and he's apparently the word has gotten to them that Jesus the day of the Lord has already happened And they somehow missed it. And so he writes to them in verse 1. He says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you. In any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, that is the Antichrist, is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God 
or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. The Bible predicts a world figure, sometimes called the Antichrist, sometimes called the man of lawlessness, sometimes called the beast, who is going to appear on the world stage. But once again, we have a sign that is very difficult to pinpoint. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have, you have, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come this is how we know it is the last hour. Brothers and sisters, if it was the last hour for the Apostle John, we're in the last minute. Now, I'm not predicting any. I'm just saying if it was the last hour for him, we're, we're definitely, the clock is ticking. But what John says here is there is, you know there is an Antichrist coming, but I tell you there are actually many Antichrists out there. Once again, a very difficult sign to pinpoint exactly when, who. I don't think we can, I said this last week, I've said this before, but I, I don't think we can understate how much Hitler would have looked like the Antichrist. If we lived then, we'd be like, that's it, that is it. We would know it. And he was an Antichrist. And so was Nero. And so are many other of the evil leaders who have come along in the spirit of Satan. But there is coming an Antichrist who is the epitome of what the Antichrist is about. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Just before the return of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 13, John writes about the beast arising out of this geopolitical chaos in a world that is in upheaval. The beast is empowered by Satan, the dragon, and people worship the beast and admire his military prowess. They say, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? I'm going to speculate a little bit, but I think it's based on things woven into this picture. The scriptures often speak about when people are saying, peace, peace, sudden destruction is going to come upon them. Speculating a little bit, my guess is that the Antichrist will be an incredibly charismatic and unifying character leader who will arise out of this upheaval and chaos and war and he will promise a war-weary world peace and he will have the power and the charisma and the charm to seemingly make it happen and there will be a collective sigh of relief finally finally peace is here. It reminds me kind of like Neville Chamberlain's peace in our time statement just before World War II broke out. 
They will be saying, peace, peace, when sudden destruction will come upon them. Here is, there's a, there's a, there's a purpose to all of this. The Antichrist isn't just some random figure that shows up. He is Satan's dream come true. He is what Satan has wanted from the very beginning. To be the God of this world. To be worshipped and to have his son rule as savior of the world. To unify the world under his reign and to impose his kingdom and his will on the earth. To be God. Everything he does, including the Antichrist, is a devilish imitation of God. And what we need to understand, or we will be taken in, is that the problem with all of this isn't the goals. The promise is the God. The promise is the God. The problem is the God. Not the goals. Only God is God. No other God is God. Satan cannot be God. Only God is worthy of worship. And yet the world will worship the beast and the dragon. Only His Son Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Only Jesus is the Prince of Peace who will bring peace to a war-weary world and a war-weary heart. Only through King Jesus can and will the earth be unified as one, every tongue, tribe, and nation. The goals, and watch because these are the goals you're going to be seeing promoted, but the goals only work when they're produced by God. And that's why Daniel says, those who know their God, will firmly resist, will stand up against the Antichrist and his phony peace treaty. And why Revelation 13 says, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will not worship the beast. The Holy Spirit in us will not allow us to worship the demonic person of the Antichrist. Sign number four, going to be short with this. Crazy and cataclysmic things in the sky and on earth. Verse 29, Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is the short version. The longer version is found in Revelation. I believe it's chapter 6. It's after the sixth seal of God's judgment is opened. God begins to open seals of judgment against the world. The sixth seal describes the incredibly unique. Now we're getting into signs that are incredibly unique. The sun being darkened, the moon turning red, stars, whatever this means, falling from heaven. Just a cataclysmic, uh, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I don't know what this. if this is literal or there's a spiritual, I don't know. But this is a unique point at which 
massive cataclysmic disasters begin to hurt the earth, hit the world. And at that moment, it's the sixth seal when men know this is God. Up until then, there is a sense where there, there's a lot of natural disasters, disease, war, famines. But now the sixth seal happens. And it says men will cry out in fear, saying, hide me from the face, from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Now they know this is God. This is, this is the wrath of God. And it's, it's for their absolute rejection of him and worship of the Antichrist. Sign number five, the return of Jesus Christ. This is, this is what it's all giving birth to. Not the Antichrist, not bad things. The glorious return of Jesus Christ. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. It's interesting to me, Jesus says, the world will look and mourn. Because at this point, again, the world has reached a fever pitch of hating Christians, hating Christianity, and worshiping the beast, the devil, and all that he stands for. So when Jesus splits the sky, they're going to know they backed the wrong horse. They, they chose the wrong God. And they will mourn. Now that doesn't mean that some of them won't repent. Zechariah chapter 9 says that the Jews will look upon him whom they've pierced and they will mourn. And I think in that mourning for some will be repentance and a turn to, to, to believe in the Messiah that they rejected. And I, could, I think that could happen worldwide. But many will be far too down that road. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back to this world. That is truer than anything you could ever think or believe. If you believe the sun is going to set tonight and rise tomorrow morning, I do too. But more certain than that, Jesus is coming back physically, visibly, splitting the sky gloriously. And we as believers in every generation are meant to be watching the signs of the times, believing that Jesus could come back at any time so that we aren't caught sleeping and caught by surprise at his return. And that's why Jesus ends all these signs by sharing parable after parable after parable that say, be ready, be ready, be watching, be ready. I hear music. <laughs> I begin to wonder. It was pretty, whatever it was. I want to close with this. What do we do with all this? Listen. First of all, I know this is heavy, but guys, we need to be aware of what the scriptures say about the last days. We live in serious times. And there is no safe place in this world. There is no safe place in this world except Jesus. He is the ark of safety. There ain't no other place you can run or hide that's going to be safe. But there is a place we can run and hide. Our refuge, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to sensationalize. I'm, you know, we have this serious thing going on in the world. It has sobered my heart. 
I, I, I'm sure it sobered your heart. But I don't want to sensationalize that because I'm praying it calms down. Amen? I'm praying this thing passes by. And it's good to pray that way. But the Lord has, I think, used it and this teaching to stir in my heart a, a weight, a fresh weight. And I pray with all my heart that it doesn't pass in my heart. And I pray it doesn't pass in your heart if things do calm down. And it's simply this. It's not to develop timelines. When's Jesus coming back? What's this? You know, what's that? Is Putin the Antichrist? And all these kind of things. I think end time teachers get so focused on that stuff. It's all they talk about. It's all they think about. Book after book. Message after message. Uh Uh-uh. We should be spending more time focused on why Jesus came the first time and, and how he has saved our souls. But we should be watching for his second return. But to do that, it doesn't mean reading every book we can get on end time prophecy. It means growing as disciples. It means growing in our walk with Jesus Christ. That's what being prepared and ready means. And that's the way as a pastor and as your pastor, that's the way that's growing in my heart that, that we are growing as disciples that we are seeing our affections for Jesus Christ, starting with mine, grow warmer and hotter for the Lord. To love Him more than this world. To love Him more than anything in this world. That's not radical Christianity. That's just normal Christianity. To love Jesus more than the next breath you take or the next beat of your heart. And I find my heart often too in love with other things. And I want to grow out of that. And I want us to grow together out of that. So that we are increasingly growing in love for Jesus as disciples. Being ready and watching isn't this intangible and it's not a sentimental or emotional thing. It certainly isn't disengaging from the world or unplugging from life. It's discipleship. Recommitting ourselves to root and establish our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and the precious Savior we have. And root our faith in the Word of God. Jesus says, abide in me. To draw our life, our heart, our affections, our lifestyle from Jesus Christ and His commands. Letting God's Word feed and nourish our souls and affect not only what we believe, but how we live. It's the power of prayer. Are we powerful in prayer? I pray. I'm sure you pray. I don't think I could say I'm powerful. But I want to get there. It's believing in the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us and transform us by grace, to break sin's hold on us and break worldliness and materialism 
and selfishness and apathy. And I think we struggle with those things, don't we? I know I do. It's repenting of hard-heartedness and asking God for a soft heart. And then it's taking all of that good news and sharing it with a world that desperately needs it. Discipleship is one word Jesus uses. I don't know that it's a destination. I think it's more of a journey. And I'm wondering if we want to go on that journey in a fresh way, with fresh intent and fresh focus. And with fresh faith. When Mark Wade heard the sirens warning of an impending tornado. He didn't try to figure out how many miles is that siren from my house? How, where exactly is that siren? He didn't say, guys, I'm going to predict exactly when that tornado is going to hit. He didn't get obsessed with the details. He ran for shelter. He took his precious wife and precious three-year-old and he said, let's get into a safe place. Jesus gives these signs not so that we become you know, obsessed with timelines and prophetic, and but so that we take our souls and our loved ones and we run to a safe place, Jesus Christ. We turn our eyes upon Him. We watch and we're ready and we're proclaiming and we're living for Jesus Christ. Let's stand together.